Hello and welcome to Explicitly Sick. This is Monica Michelle, and I'm really excited because I have Sarah Ramy back on. If you want, please go back and listen to my first interview with her. Um, she is amazing. She wrote an incredible book called The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness, a memoir. It is one of my favorite books of this year, um, and I really encourage you to go take a look at it and check out the library, buy it if you can. Uh, if you head over to my show notes, I have a link directly to Sarah's book and also to Sarah's music, which Sarah goes under Wolf Larson. Uh, this is a really lovely talk. Uh, we had a wonderful time chatting about creativity, finding those moments in between to be able to think creatively. Sarah really is <laughs> amazing sort of guide in how to handle chronic illness and creativity. Um, but please take a listen. And also we are a network, Invisible Not Broken, and um, there are some amazing podcasts there. If you um, would be kind and leave a review for Explicitly Sick, that would be wonderful and lovely. Also, I apologize. My chickens went nuts halfway through this interview, so you will hear a lot of clucking. Um, please enjoy this interview with Sarah and tune in again next month for the next episode. Have a wonderful day and be kind. Who's the precious one behind you? Oh, that's Matilda. She will probably be back. She likes to present her butt directly to the camera as like part of the presentation. So she's like, wait, she's like biding her time right now. Yeah, that's pure cat. I love. Yes. <laughs> it, my chickens are outside just waiting to like start summoning Cthulhu, which is what they do like midway through any sort of thing that I'm doing that's recording. Like all of a sudden you'll hear like one of them start and then the other ones, it's not even clucking. It's like, it seriously sounds like they're summoning some sort of like yeah. demonic chicken God. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they, I mean, and they probably are. <laughs> I, mean, I keep waiting. I'm, I'm looking for like, the green smoke. I, I mean, I was raised by Disney. So I, I feel like the green smoke would be a definite clue in to what would be happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so good to see you again. This is really nice. We get to do this again. I'm really glad you have the time. You're so busy. I, I man, really busy. <laughs> no, but I, I want to do this is good. This is like what I'm busy with. So this is perfect <laughs> I'm so proud of you I keep watching all this stuff happening with you and then I'm like is she okay <laughs> no. the answer is no I feel like this is the main thing I feel like I want to post about more than like hey come to this or doing this because I have to post all of that stuff but man <laughs> being a sick person with these problems and like even doing a book tour on zoom which is great for accessibility for for me but like wow, <laughs> is so difficult because it's for me, I can basically just do like one, one thing a day. And so I can do this, but then that's like, I couldn't also do like making dinner <laughs> or like laundry or other things. And so it really, <laughs> luckily I don't really have anything else going on. So it's like a very, it's, it's a fine time to be promoting a book, uh, but, but it is extremely exhausting. And I, I've had some people message me and they'll be like, wow, I thought, I thought you were sick. Like you're doing all these events. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I have not conveyed properly what an invisible illness is and like what it takes to, to do anything. Just that, you, just cause you're like a prairie dog and you like pop up <laughs> for like five minutes doesn't mean <laughs> that you're not gonna pop back down right afterwards and be laid out for a while. And I think that people don't they don't have that experience of illness them, themselves as like an ongoing thing. So they don't understand that. I think, yeah, when you're dealing with someone who's like 
I know it being tired is I've had the flu. Like there's that idea of like, you don't see anyone when you have the flu, you curl up in a ball and, you know, curl up with like your, your thermometer in your throat bucket. And like, you don't see anyone during that time. But if that's all your reality is, is being sick, you can't just hide. I guess you could. You could, but you wouldn't. I mean, because you 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 have human needs. You need to you need to connect with people. You need to like try to if you can, which is a luxury to if you have one of these you know fatiguing illnesses. It is a luxury to be able to get out of bed at all. A lot of us can't at all. But I mean, it's not that much of a luxury. <laughs> it's like you know when you're dealing with all of these other serious problems and. It's, I, yeah, I think that it's just so alien to anyone that, that hasn't, hasn't dealt with it before. They just don't, I, I know that I didn't, I don't know that I didn't even like consider <laughs> the concept of energy prior to being sick. I mean, it just doesn't even cross your mind. It's just there. It's not like, it's like thinking about air or something like that. You're not like, oh, I'm really going to ponder, you know, like the luxury of breath, <laughs> you know, like that most people don't do that. And, but until it's gone, until you, until you can't breathe. And so it's, this, I think it's very similar with energy when it's gone. It's the dominant fact of every moment of every day but it's invisible and other people just can't understand it because their, you know, stores of energy are replenishing normally. So. Those people, I'm, I'm really jealous of the temporarily able people sometimes <laughs> like that. They don't have to factor getting to work like the, you know, this whole world, I feel like we got to this point where in the last year we can start considering book tours on zoom, mm-hmm. you know, so that disabled authors either with like mental health issues, like I'm just reading Jenny Larson, who I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just came out the new one. And it's like, that's a person who should be able to have the option to just be quietly in their home and do a zoom thing. And, you know, there's, there's so much that we can start doing in, in every sector. And yeah. and, it's, <laughs> and it's important, I think, to, to really, be vocal about that and to hold people to it. It's like, okay, you open this door, you can't close it now. You can't be like, well, that was important when we were all suffering, <laughs> but you guys are a small proportion of people who are suffering. And so we're just gonna, it's too difficult for us to accommodate you going forward. I think it's very important to be, you know, if you've been participating in your local church service or anything like that on Zoom, to like make sure you, and you wanna keep participating, you weren't able to before. Make sure that they know that like you want yeah. to keep going and that you, this is like a service that you wish had existed the 10, 20, 30 years, you know, before, and that you hope that they'll keep doing it. I, I know my mom's Quaker meeting is, is going to do that and really, really amped about it. Oh, do you know? <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. So I'm hoping but, student unions do that too. Like I'm really hoping student unions fight hard for this to continue because this is so like, even if you don't think about like the sick people, if you think about temporarily abled people and temporarily mm-hmm. abled kids, like they get the flu, they might have surgery, they might break a leg. Like mm-hmm. it would be really great if they don't lose time at school, if they could just zoom into the classroom and still do that. Mm-hmm. Those are my little passion projects right now um, <laughs> for you and your book, which is doing so well. And I cannot tell you how many people have like messaged me going, you have to read this. And I'm like, already did. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's nice. Yes, you're awesome. I'm, I'm like required by law to do this. <laughs> I think you are required by law, especially since it does look like juicy fruit. 
and it's so pretty. <laughs> it really looks like, especially now that it's like a little bit smaller. It's actually a lot smaller. The compare the comparison of this to the hardcover is like whenever I would give the the hardcover to people before, I would have to be like, it reads very quickly. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> you're gonna be okay. <laughs> I promise that it was written to be like a page turner because it is like hefty when it's the hardcover. This is a just a very average looking <laughs> book, which I really, I was so relieved when I saw it, when it arrived, I was like, oh, okay. This I feel comfortable handing out to anybody and we'll be fine. <laughs> I was kind of hoping that your agency was going to send me wrist braces with it, just like as a joke of, like, <laughs> we know you have LA Stainless, here's the wrist brace to hold this amazing book. It did read really fast. Like I, I got through it in like almost two days. It was so good. You can't stop reading it. That's what that I really want. I've been talking about this recently. I've been doing some different like writing workshops for teaching about, you know, writing the body. And, but I, I did a class about like writing a medical thriller and yeah. it asked me to, to teach that. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that is what this is. I was like, I could teach about that. And like, and that really was a very conscious decision. I was like, okay, if this is going to be such a difficult story and so graphic and and also like just so winding and, and difficult, like not not just some easy there and back again story, like it if that was going to be the case, then to me it felt important that it was also going to be you know a, a pitch turner and to be like to to be something that would take care of you, the reader, <laughs> and like make sure that you weren't. Um, left behind or or like too re-traumatized <laughs> like because like that would be my problem that is my problem sometimes reading other books about illness like it can be hard <laughs> because it's so painful to read or to re-enter something that you've experienced yourself and so I wanted to not I wanted to find some way to like thread the needle between not avoiding those topics and not being like well let's just stick with the light stuff I got some feedback from unnamed uh, people in my writerly orbit that was like, really wanted me to take out some of like the really brutal scenes. And I was like, well, why? I was like, but what, what's the reason for that? Like, I just think it's too difficult for somebody, you know, that's on the lesser end of the spectrum to have to go all the way down into that. And I was like, but isn't that unfair to all the people in the, the, the late stage end of the spectrum? Like, of course, we got to keep <laughs> talking about, but but that was that that was like always this challenge of how to how to write something that's really just a terrible story, but in a way that is fun and has <laughs> <It was> jokes. <laughs> how did you manage that? Because I I just went back um, before we started talking and I reread. Um, one of the most uh, cringing <laughs> paragraphs I've ever read in my life, um, and it hurt but you managed to do it in a way that wasn't, I think exploitive is the wrong word, but like I've had, I think anyone who's been in these situations with stirrups and speculums and white coats Mm -hmm. knows that feeling of complete and utter vulnerability and fear. Mm -hmm. And you managed to write in a way that didn't like reopen trauma for me, but it cringed everything inside of me. I'm wondering still, like, as a writer, even as a writer and like reading through this, like deconstructing, how did you do that? (laughs) How did you make me feel the vulnerability without traumatizing me? Like how? 
I think or we're talking about the beginning, like the opening scene. Literally the opening. Like, yeah. <laughs> this was, first of all, this the was tearing. a very I think the ripping was the word. Ripping. Yeah, yeah, it's ripping yeah. I really wanted to start there, A, because it did start there, but B, because I really wanted it to be like a scene that made it possible for the reader to like self-select in or out of this book. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like right at the beginning, because there's a lot of that that comes afterwards. And yeah. so I really wanted to make sure that they weren't like blindsided <laughs> by that, you know, several times. Well, I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> and then you're like, what? What is this? This is not what I signed up for. I wanted to be like, this is exactly what you said. I appreciate that. We agreed on page one. And so, so that was part of that. But I think it's, so here's what I would say in a very technical sense. One thing is that there, I don't think there's like, there's maybe one passage that doesn't have really difficult passage that doesn't have like jokes in it. There is usually some amount of humor in there somewhere as like a leavening agent, as like a way to kind of not make it just feel like I'm in my feelings entirely about it while I'm writing about it. There is one scene that that there are no jokes, like the scene later with the male clinic. There's one really bad scene and that I was like, I'm not making any jokes here because uh, it was so bad. But, and this was really bad. This was really bad, but you know, it's the opening of the books. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, try to be as inviting as possible. And so that that's one part of it. I feel like that's just like a technique of mine. I actually wrote, I've talked about this in a lot of writing clinics. I wrote two full manuscripts that got chucked in the trash that were that don't have like not even a single artifact from those manuscripts or in this manuscript. And it was because the way I was writing about it was I was affecting a like a sorrowful, wistful memoirist's voice because I thought that that was how you're supposed to write about like all of these things. And I, you certainly can, and some people do, and that's like their authentic voice. That's, that is true to who they are. That's not true to who I am. Like in a, in, when we're having this conversation, that is like, I don't feel like I come across as like, you know, a wistful, sad, sorrowful person. And so it was not working for me to be that way on the, on the page. But then another thing is, um, uh, this is throughout the whole book, but there's very, very short sections and there's a lot of white space between like paragraphs and things. And again, there's got a lot of pushback from this from my publisher because that's more expensive because of all that white space you have to print all you there are more pages that you have to uh, put in the book but to me that really helped my brain um which has a lot of trouble focusing on like dense paragraphs things like that it just really helped me kind of stay focused during the editing process and rereading it and i slowly started to realize i was like oh i think that this also is actually what i see in like a Gone Girl or the girl with the dragon tattoo or things like that, they have so, the sh sections are so short and there's a lot of like breaking up of the paragraphs, not quite the same style, like of white space as like a tool, but like of really keeping the reader moving along um, using short sections and being as kind of as punchy as possible. To me, that helps 
just make sure you don't get like stuck in like an eddy and like a trauma eddy. <laughs> so like, oh my god, I love that. That's you know, it's like that. I feel that way sometimes. I'm reading. I'm not going to name the book I'm reading, but I'm reading a book right now where I'm like, man, I really would like like an escape hatch from this thing that just keeps going and going and going. And so, so I always feel very conscious of that with just wanting it. To, it's it's not wanting to lessen the experience of the thing. It, I really try to make it as graphic as possible and as real as possible, but just not as like, not not something that you have to like carry in like a sack on your back as the reader that's like, uh, as a duty to this person who went through these bad things, I'm gonna drag this along behind me. I really want it to feel easy, but true. That's a beautiful line to draw there (laughs) on this is something to make you feel less alone if you're like this, to help you understand if you are not like this and you want to understand better, but you do not have to carry my trauma. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I don't want to erase my trauma to make people feel comfortable, but I also don't want them to be burdened with it for the rest of the week or month or their lives. You know, I, that nobody owes me that. I just want them to understand, but not like internalize it and like take it on as something that's hurting them. I almost thought you used the white space the way, like I was talking to a friend of mine who's a therapist and he was saying how frustrating it was to do therapy on Zoom, not because of the usual reasons, but there isn't that white space time of like where you're going to therapy or you're leaving therapy and you have this uninterrupted time from your life to actually consider the words. I was wondering if like, maybe that was like a part of your white space was like to give the reader some space to absorb that like very intense experience after experience you were dealing with. No, okay, no, so, so that was entirely in my head. All right, no worries. Beautiful idea. If anything, it's the opposite. I feel like when there's a lot of space and breaks, it needs makes me read faster because I'm like, oh. what happens in the next section? There's something about like you're never like stuck in a long chapter. You're always like, there's always the sense of like, okay, but just one more, just one more, one little bit more, and. Oh. I, 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 that was also on purpose. There was a, there's a book, a Joan Didion book called Play It As It Lays. And it's like one of her fiction books and her novels. And, uh, and I think every chapter is like one or two pages. And that was the same thing. I just read that, you know, in one gulp in one day. And I remember when I was reading it, I was like, it, there is nothing, the prose is just as, you know, uh, is just as dense as like the rest of her sort of level of thought in any other book, but I've never read any of her other books so quickly. And I was like, it's, it's this, the shortness of the sections has like a little bit, of, it gives you like a little zap every time you finish like a thing, you're like, well, I'll do one more. I'll just, okay, one more. <laughs> and just keep moving along. And I think that that helps too with the, the trauma mediation part of it is to don't stay here, keep going, <laughs> you know? It also helps my ADHD brain handle stuff really well. Like that's, that's a lot of, um, it was a lot for you to live through. Yeah. So it makes it, um, something to easily get through as a reader. I, I cannot wait to reread it. It's been probably about like five or six months since I've read your book and I'm hoping we keep trying to start a book club and, uh, life keeps jumping up and destroying that idea your book is the first book for the book club when we actually get this together but uh the world seems to be very entertained right now no, I'm no, I'm well don't 
don't worry about that. I'm always on call if you ever want to. I cannot wait. I, it's just mm-hmm. been one heck of a ride for about six months. So it's, um, it's been very interesting. With all of this media, are you talking to like, I mean, we're a chronic illness podcast. I'm assuming you're talking to people who aren't sick. How is it to, how are you explaining all of this to the temporarily healthy people out there in the media? Yes. Um, Well, it's really, I would just have to say it's evolved over time because, you know, I started out last year talking about this. Like, it was like, I like to say my book came out the same way coronavirus came out. (laughs) (laughs) It was a very bad timing because it was also, it was March 17th. So it was like literally the week where it was like the world just like started collapsing around us. And so kind of unlike books prior to to that, and also like at least books that came out in April or May, they knew that this is the new reality. And so they had like a chance to like plan and then redo their schedule of what they were going to do for publicity. This did not happen with this book. And so everything was canceled and, and the stuff that, that wasn't canceled, I was like a very new, fresh author. And so I was really trying to like find my way through, how do you, finding my way through learning like, so most interviews are not like this where the person has definitely read the book and like, and understands what you're talking about in the first place because they themselves have this illness or type of illness. So doing all these interviews with like a radio station in Ireland where the person has like the wrong, (laughs) there was one interview that I did where the person that was interviewing me had been given the summary of the book that they wrote up when I first sold the book, which is 12 years ago, no, 10 10 years ago, where I really thought the book was kind of going to be about something else. Like it was like, obviously still about these things, but like the conclusion was different. And I really thought it was going to be like all about the parasitic infection that we had found and the microbiome and that's in there, but like, that's not like the end of the story. Somehow my, my publisher in the UK had like written up a summary of my book way back when and had never updated it. And so they sent out to, to all of these like, uh, interviewers like kind of the log line of the book and it was like you know a person like after being dismissed by her doctors for so many years like finally discovers that it's like this terrible parasitic infection and blah 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 so they were like so what was it like when you finally found out about the infection and I was like wait (laughs) I well I mean I did but as you know like that was really kind of in the beginning and then so much other stuff and that really wasn't. And then I was like, Oh, they haven't read it. They haven't read it. <laughs> They've got the wrong summary of the book. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> and that was, you know, just learning to be interviewed in a very complex, about a very complex subject. That's like what the book is about. It's like, how do you describe a super complex phenomenon that has almost no like, cohesive language there isn't a name for like these neuroimmune disorders like there isn't like a parent name for that that's why i call it a womi or a momi or a person with mysterious illness these are like completely made up stupid names but it's because there's no there is no language that helps us understand ourselves to be a part of the same phenomenon which i think that we clearly are and so 
<laughs> so the book is about that, but it takes like 400 pages to kind of expand on that or, or to try to make the reader understand. So how do you do that? Like with somebody who has not read the book and you've got 10 minutes. <laughs> and so that, that this has been a real challenge. But, but what I found is that the thing that has helped me the most, because one thing that was happening a lot was that people would, at the end of the interview, they'd be like, well, sounds like a really difficult road for you, but I'm glad to see you looking so well. I'm glad that it all worked out for you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've, I failed. (laughs) Everything I just talked about, everything about invisible illness and how you can't tell and it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. (laughs) And so I have changed my approach, especially with temporarily abled people or people I suspect may not have read the book. And I will just start off at the beginning to like give some names and some language to to what we're talking about. But I do like a verbal x-ray of like, what is happening in my body right now? And so, and we talk about, cause I'm like, cause I get it. I look totally fine. Your audience is gonna watch this and think, well, she doesn't look sick to me, you know? And that and that's, that is what the book is about. <laughs> that is about, that is the experience that 100% of these patients experience, not in a, weekly basis, but like on an hourly basis, depending on like who you're interacting with or whatever. And so it really has helped me to be, to say, I'll I'll do it right now to say, okay, so here's some of the things, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's some of the things that are happening right now. Number one, I have myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome. This is an illness that you either are not familiar with or you have the wrong idea about, which is, This is, it's often considered, you know, some form of laziness or it's not real or whatever. In reality, at the furthest end of the spectrum, this is a completely disabling disease where you can't sit up, you can't feed yourself, you can't bathe yourself. It is easily uh, way over the line into like the big bads. (laughs) Like there's, there's, there should be no question, nobody should have a question about this. And so, and I was in that place for a long time. Now I'm, you know, I've, I've backed up a little bit from there. I can sit up, I can do this for an hour with you, which is a miracle for me having been in that terrible place, but this is it. This is all I can do for the day. And then I will be, I will feel like I've got the flu for the rest of the day and that's normal. And so that's number one. Number two is uh, this all started with me with a really bad injury uh, that's in the first couple of pages of the book with, it was a urological surgery essentially gone wrong where we didn't really understand this at the time, but I had been, the surgeon slipped and he put his instrument in the wrong place and really severely damaged some, yes, <laughs> some vaginal nerves. And then this led to a, unspeakably bad pain syndrome called complex regional pain syndrome, which is in my vagina, my bladder, my abdomen, my spine. I I mean, just right there, like the chronic regional pain syndrome, which most people who have heard of it think limb and do not realize this can have (laughs) other places. This can be a vaginal thing. Like, yes, it's a quick underline. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Most people haven't heard of it at all. They're like, and also complex regional pain syndrome, much like chronic fatigue syndrome, the language is so unserious sounding. <laughs> it's like complex regional pain syndrome sounds like 
shoulder achiness syndrome or something like it doesn't sound like you've had a layer of skin peeled back and then lemon juice rubbed in and then left for the rest of your life like that that is how it is an it is a really bad pain syndrome so i have that in my vagina bladder abdomen um and then i also that injury caused my colon to stop functioning and so i also have uh, an ileostomy, which is like a colostomy bag, which also can't see because it's, you know, in my clothes and it's below the camera line. But again, the ileostomy is such a great distillation of like, don't say to somebody, well, but you look just fine. It's like, did you want me to get it out? Like, it's right. You can actually see this, but mm -hmm. like, don't say to somebody that just because you can't see it, it's not real. It's not happening or they must be okay because they are funny or like, or, or, or nice, or, you know, don't have a boil on their face or something, you know, like that is, you wouldn't, we would never, ever, ever say that to a cancer patient. You wouldn't be like, well, you're looking really well. Are you sure you've got cancer? <laughs> you know, you would, it, I mean, it would just be. I had relatives. What's that? I have relatives. I would not put that past. I, I... <laughs> that's true. That's true. There are some people, but this is like, <gasps> everyone says this to people yeah. who have these types of illnesses and it's like a minority of variants and people who would say that to, you know, I'm sorry, bad joke. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I, I just to clarify, because I think people don't, they just, it's, it's not malicious usually <laughs> it's just, it just is like a knee-jerk reaction and it's like well you know look sick to me and it's like well that has nothing to do with it to be honest so many serious illnesses that the length just the language we know to think oh shit like if you hear multiple sclerosis you're not like well you don't look like you have multiple sclerosis like they you, you don't or lupus or something like that people still don't understand those problems very well but there's some type of language protection that's a little bit better than there is around chronic fatigue syndrome, around Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, around mast cell activation, around POTS, around this family, sorry, I just knocked over. Um, this family of illnesses that has no protection. It is just, there's no language that you can protect yourself. I mean, there is, but it's no simple language to help protect yourself and the people that you know, are trying to invalidate you. Anyway, so that's been my my best tool is to kind of just begin with like, well, let's talk about what it's really like because I know what you're thinking and I want to <laughs> just nip that in the bud in the beginning, even for my own mental health so that we don't get the bit at the end where you say, well, I'm glad that you've recovered. Thanks for coming. And then <laughs> leave, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's been so difficult for me. Yeah. I just feel like you're going through like so many of our nightmares on like this daily basis, like of like where we're all like, Oh God, we don't want to go to that reunion. Oh God, we don't want to go to that family function. Please don't tell me I look fine, please. And like you port that you're like out there, like doing this like live all the time with people who don't get it, like really. And they're not invested in getting it necessarily. Like they were given a brief right before you come on on here's the book, here's the person you know, have something innocuous while people drink their coffee. And you're like, so when I tore everything. And yeah. yeah, no, it's true. And also there's these, there are basically like two illness narratives that are acceptable narratives. Mm -hmm. There is the, uh, I overcame this and I am like a fighter that overcame it all. That's like one thing. A lot of people really want that to be the story. They're like, well, but what was the end? I'm like, there's no end. There's no end. <laughs> 
I'm like, what do you mean? No tombstone yet. So exactly. And but they but you they really are so disappointed when I don't have this triumphant. And that's how I learned like that all the doctors were wrong. They treated me badly this whole time. And I got to show them and like to a degree I did. I did learn that I had been injured and what was kind of causing all the stuff. I learned about NACFS, blah blah blah. But like that's not the most satisfying thing. And a lot of people, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to them at all that I have those diagnoses. Like as long as I have NECFS, they're not, especially doctors, they're like, oh, but I don't think that's that's a real or serious problem. And so it doesn't matter that you've got a diagnosis. So you don't have that neat narrative that that people really want from you. Or I think I fit into this and we, a lot of us do fit into like the, the tragic narrative a little bit more something that is just like a bad thing that happened and is going to keep happening. And like, here's some like awareness around it. And, you know, like there, but normally you wouldn't be the narrator of that tragic story. It would be a story about you and about people like you, like living in this difficult thing, but like being a protagonist, in the tragic story is like anathema. <laughs> People are like, wait, <laughs> either you overcame it because you're strong and inspiring, or we need to like send camera crews to like film you looking out the window sadly and we'll narrate it for you. <laughs> but it can't be both of those things. <laughs> like, with the violin underneath it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, I think it can be tragic and proactive i think it can be a really bad thing like i i am somebody that's like very outspoken about no no these are these are this is a terrible thing to happen to any i'm not the it's fine to me if other people feel good saying like well i'm glad that this happened because it made me stronger and blah 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 i am not (laughs) like that i'm like i i want to draw strength from this. I want to look at the good things that have happened and appreciate those things. Like I can do that. I think it's important and healthy to do that. But I'm not going to say, oh, am I so, I'm so grateful that this happened. I, my boyfriend, an ex-boyfriend used to say this to me all the time. He's like, but don't you think you wouldn't have become Wolf Larson, which is my musical persona, if this hadn't happened to you? And I was like, I mean, maybe, but who cares? Like, but I mean, he was like, but that's so important to you. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is, I would trade in every good thing that's happened to me for my health. I, I, that's, that's my perspective around this. And so, so for me, like, yes, there's a lot of tragedy that surrounds these illnesses and that's okay. That doesn't mean that you are without agency and it doesn't mean that you can't look create good things within this sort of catastrophe that's like burning all around you. That's all good. It's just that I think they kind of get, you get forced into, for other people to feel better about it. They're, they're like, well, it has to all have been for a reason. And I'm like, well, I don't think that's Oh God, that narrative, that narrative. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think you'd say that to like a mother who lost their Chat, are you going to say that? Please don't say that. <laughs> if you are that person, please immediately reconsider everything. Reconsider, like I, I, I get it that they want to find meaning and they want you to cheer up and they don't want you to suffer because it makes them suffer. But that is their own problem. That is stuff that they have to work through. 
And don't, it is not your responsibility to shrink down your suffering and disappear it so that other people Ooh. don't have to contend with it. I, I think it's also great to not dump your trauma and, you know, continually on people. That That's not good. But having to disappear yourself is obviously not acceptable. <laughs> but a lot of people want that. Like, they would really prefer <laughs> that I just get better. And I probably would if I would drink more green juice and celery juice. Yoga. Don't forget the yoga. I mean, yoga, yoga helps me, but like, Oh my God. Well, I did. I, I can't do it anymore, but it did help me. And that's fine. I mean, that's what, again, we have to talk about this in the book, the book. Have I held it up recently? Please keep holding it up. Like, I swear, I love this book and I'm not, I, I say this a million times. I'm not into nonfiction very often. Like I love my fantasy. I love my fairy tales. I do not often read nonfiction. You're editor or your publicist sent it to me at the perfect moment where it's like I'm not reading anything and this looks pretty and it looks <laughs> funny like the the title alone was like of course I'm reading this this is absolutely gonna happen. I was like this is so great I love this I need to like find some way to like be friends oh, yeah. <laughs> to know better like this is such a great book so please holding it up yeah it's, yeah uh, here it is. It, it has the fiction nuts stamp on. This is the nonfiction book I really loved this year. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I don't read a lot of nonfiction either. Um, but what I was going to say about it is that that is, you know, through my own journey, you know, I've been through a lot of these things that have helped other people or cured other people. And we, I think all of us, not most of us, to the degree that we're able because of our physical ability, our financial ability, like whatever our limitations are, we want to try whatever. <laughs> like it would, like I, I always say, like if eating a bucket of snails, like every day, raw snails, cured me, you better believe <laughs> that that's what I would do for the rest of my life until they like distilled that down into a miracle pill. And so it's, for me, it's very important to not like shame people for the, wacky stuff that they try to try to get better because it's like, yeah, of course, of course, like anyone would do that in the absence of any type of traditional treatments or care that are offered for medicine, which is by and large the case for a lot of these illnesses. But, but the problem is that when you're like set loose into the wilds of alternative medicine, A, there is a lot of nonsense and B, there's not like a collective understanding of um, well, there's a really complex like world of chronic illnesses. And so some things work for some people, some things work for other people, some things work for people who are less sick, et cetera. So there's so many different caveats to make. So I, it's like, for me, it's like this challenge. It's like being a big tent party. It's like having to like hold all these coalitions <laughs> in the same tent, because I don't want to disbelieve somebody who did eat a bucket of snails every day and got better. I'm like, yeah, I believe that person. Like, but I also don't want the snails person to become like a snails proselytist to be like out, like Bible thumping about like, well, this is what heals everybody because it healed me. And that is what you see a lot of is that when people get better, they like create a all program around it for the that low one. price of, for the low low price of <laughs> yeah so whatever four ninety five you too can be healed and just follow me and and so and that gives the whole you know all of it a bad name and so it's just this very challenging what what I find to be challenging uh, position of of not wanting to 
really discount any of it. Like I'm open to anything. I'm just interested in like, okay, well, why, why does that work? Like if you're doing brain retraining and this person got better doing brain retraining and this person got better doing ayahuasca, I'm like, well, those things actually to me sound very similar. They're just different ways of accessing this sort of reprogramming of the maladaptive limbic response. Like, okay, maybe we can find an easier way to do that than like having to go through these, both of these really difficult processes. So how do you get the dividing line between being the critical thinker and being the sick person who, and I fall into this, I am a critical thinker. I love asking good questions until I get hope put in my face. And this is why I get so mad at the wellness industry is I'm so susceptible to it. So how do you, how do you separate those? How do you, how do you find that space to feel the hope and ask the good questions? It's a great question. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I was wanting an answer. <laughs> oh, it's a great question. What I mean, I don't think there is like a good answer to that. I think my answer to that is just, so the filter that I tend to use is, and I write about this in the book, is functional medicine, which is not, I'm not like functional medicine is the answer, but I tend to think that like the people in that area are like more evidence-based than some of us, some, some people in this community. And so, and so, and they're looking at, and they're doing a lot of the analytic work, like especially certain ones that I read about Chris Kresser. I like Chris Kresser, he's a really sciencey minded person. I think if he himself had not become a mommy, he would probably be like the disbelieving, doubting <laughs> doctor type. Like that's very much the energy. But but I like that applying that type of very skeptical mind, like using somebody like that who's no longer sick, who's working in the wellness industry, who's like very skeptical. I tend to like look to him to to or to people like him to to kind of see what they're saying about this type of thing as like one filter screen instead of like scrolling down to the um are you looking up Chris Presner? <laughs> um instead of like scrolling down to see like the reviews <laughs> or whatever that's like oh it turns out they're all five-star reviews like that's strange that's- my goodness why isn't everyone healthy then if it's just dandelion roots and yeah. good wishes <laughs> yeah and so so that is like one screen that I, I is not a perfect screen is, but it's like a way of kind of protecting myself against just like all of it. Cause all of the messaging from literally anything that's in the wellness industry that this is, I always say this, if you are the proprietor of this yoga clinic or this, you know, mushroom capsule company or whatever, it does not work to sell your product to say like, well, it might work, but I mean, it probably won't. <laughs> you can't say, or it might not. Like you can't, it has to be, this is going to cure you. Like that's, that is, it's it's the same thing as like the miracle pill sort of um, uh, oversimplification of so many medicines in Western medicine. It's it's very similar sort of mindset that's like just, turn away from all of the complexity of it all, from all of the um, different experiences that people have. Let's just only focus on these three people that got better and just use them in our testimonials on our page. And that'll, that'll sell more product. And that's, I, 
get it from an entrepreneur's standpoint, but it's not ethical. <laughs> and it's incredibly um, uh, damaging to us, <laughs> the, the patients. And so at this point, because it's been 18 years for me, I would have to say, because I too am very susceptible to anything. <laughs> but I also, because it's been going on for so long, I, I think that I have developed uh, not not a not a more sophisticated analytic mind, but just like a really tough, jaded exterior. That's just like I don't. It has to be really compelling, and it can't be. I don't think it would have to be for me to do something that was really difficult again. That's like some like I'm gonna like I fasted for three weeks, like the craziest, <laughs> like just the craziest of memory. It's not crazy. It was, it was, I, I just don't know what I could have been thinking, except that I would do anything that I would, you know, eat a bucket of snails every day to, to get better. But like things like that, where I clearly damaged myself in the, in the process of trying to get better. In the beginning, I think it's that trade off. You're like, but on the other side, I'll be healthy. That's what they're telling me. And so you're willing to do a lot more. And I, I wish that I sort of had had a little bit more of that like jaded perspective in the beginning to to just to not be mean to any of these like cures that like I don't I don't need to like step on other people's like whatever the thing is to, to be able to just say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not for me. Like you come back to me when there's been, you know, a 10,000 person study and we can really let's talk about it then. If, it, if it's a really difficult thing, if it's like an inexpensive supplement that really helps my best friend who's got a very similar condition to mine, like, yeah, I might try that. <laughs> like, but my expectations are usually pretty low at this point. And that, I think that also helps <laughs> just in terms of protecting my, my own heart that I'm not just constantly getting my hopes up and then dashed and up and then dash. Yeah. I, I viscerally feel that like that yeah. I, I'm doing it right now. I was trying a new protocol again and it's my third time with this protocol is it's the only protocol that kind of works. Yeah. And so I started just chronicling it because everyone I heard of was like, I'm at the end of it and I'm 20 and I'm super cute and I'm a chronic influence influencer and, and, and this totally works and I'm great. And I don't need my wheelchair anymore. And I don't need my painkillers anymore. And then your brain starts like doing this little cute little hamster dance of this idea of what your life could be like, if, you even if it got 10% better or 20% better or 40% better. So you jump back into it, even if you failed it four times. And there's this, like, I think there's a parallel between the this wellness industry and religion and that there's these rules to do this protocol that are so extreme and so hard that chances are you're going to fail. Like chances are there's no, it fits perfectly in your life and you will fail at it. And you're not getting to this level it's entirely on you. Yeah. It's on you. And there are some built in um, kind of loopholes. That's like, well, if you fail, it's actually because of you, it's because you didn't try hard enough. Like, like the way it's set up is that it, like you can't actually do it perfectly. So like a good example of this is um, if you're at the part of the journey where you start looking at different emotions to be like, oh, shame causes you to have fibromyalgia or guilt causes you to have vaginal pain or whatever. Stress <laughs> is the new hysteria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
So this is a a well-traveled stop on the journey. <laughs> like I feel like everybody <laughs> stopped here at some point. Like some people stay for less time, which is better. <laughs> yeah, because, please don't don't live in the land of chronic illness. Stay here. <laughs> but, but I stayed there for a little too long and it really damaged me. But the problem, so this is a really good example of this though, is that it's presented to you as like, if you just do the work, like literally, like there's what that woman, something Katie or Katie Byron, there's somebody whose book is called The Work. And it's like, if you do the work, it's well proven that you will come out the other side healed. This is the way the body works. And it's, it is very religious. It's like, we're not basing this on any science or <laughs> not like, the secret. <laughs> like, not the secret, but like kind of the secret. The secret. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, and it's telling you that if you just exercise enough demons, and if you just think, if you just can remember that you are love and you are loved <laughs> and all of these things, if you just stay there perfectly, then your body will like get the signal and will recalibrate and it will all go back to normal. And it's interesting because when we go back to that, like ayahuasca and brain retraining sort of paradigm, I can see that this actually, that actually fits into the same uh, model of your, your, because I believe that there are people that get better doing things like this. And I'm like, right. But that's because that person happens to be the person that really did do the very uh, unlikely work of resetting that maladaptive limbic response, right? Which I do think has to do with inflammation, things like that. But, but it's not something that you can just like, say that most people can say affirmations and will just go away. But the problem is, is so you start getting into it and you're like, hey, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to, I'm going to say every last affirmation. I'm going to work with a counselor. I'm really going to do it. And the problem is that the only uh, way to like succeed doing a pro program like this is to get better. And if you don't get better, it's not that if this program doesn't work, it's that you didn't do it well enough. It's that you must be concealing more shame and more guilt and more whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's, and, and that's like, what, what do we call it? It's a self-sealing narrative. That's just like, it is constructed to never let you go. <laughs> and but like you were saying about religion, I feel like that's similar in a lot of ways with different, you know, very dogmatic religions that it's like, if you just do these things, you will find happiness and you will find salvation. If you don't, well, it must be that you're not godly enough and that you're not doing it well enough. And it's like, not that, oh, that was all bullshit to begin with, you know? And that that's, it's just the problem is it's like, it's not religion, it's wellness. These are people that should know better that are like, shouldn't be taking advantage of sick people and of vulnerable people. It, it, that's the thing that makes me so mad about it is like, you are charged with, it's the same, it's a, it's a different, it's the other side of the coin with like being angry with physicians for being so cruel to the person who is so vulnerable sitting in front of them by disbelieving them and telling them that they're a hysterical malingerer. But it's just totally unacceptable if you're charged with helping and caring for and healing people. You just, that cannot, that has to be like an extreme, extreme last resort. If you've got somebody that is like clearly flagrantly making things up or whatever, that can't be like what you do for 20% of your patients. Like that's just, or, or 50% or whatever it is. But 
the same thing is true on the other side with um, alternative medicine. It's like, these people are so desperate. They have been so abused by the regular medical system. You know this as the, as the wellness practitioner. You cannot sell them this stuff that you know is not true because you're trying to make money. Like you just, this is, I, I, I guess maybe I don't know that they know it's not true, but I just feel like I know I'm friends with enough people in the wellness world that I'm like, can't you just put a caveat in there? That's like, you might as well try it, but like, it might not work. Like, can't you just say that? Like that would, that would prevent this person from doing your program. And if it doesn't work from that for them, walking away, thinking that there's something terrible and wrong with them, because that is what's going to happen to a lot of the people who don't get better doing your program. And that, that cannot, you have to protect those people from feeling that way. And so part of that is to say that, well, there's no universal law is to say that this might not work. You just have to be able to say that. And a lot of them don't. So it's very problematic. Yeah. And like, and not just yourself, but also that your family members won't say you didn't do it right. Like I say, it's not my story to tell. So I'll use as few details as possible, but I did know someone who was dying of cancer and they were told to follow this insanely strict diet of like no dairy, no nothing. And it was found later that there was cheese after this person had passed, there was cheese in the refrigerator. It was like this, oh my God thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so there's this issue of like, okay, so now the family members have bought into this. So even if you yourself as a sick person are like, you know what, <laughs> that's, that's not working for me anymore. Then you now have to go battle against the people who love you, who are like, but this could work. And you could be, you know, we talked about this in the beginning is there's this divide between the people who love and support you to do what you need to do for your body. And then there's people who love and support you if you will fit into their narrative. And if you fit comfortably into their life and those can also be the people who are physically and emotionally the closest to you, who can be sometimes the most damaging with that idea. And if you don't follow the protocol that they feel could work for you, now you're fighting both things. And that can get really awful in some very bad situations. Yes. It's, this is, this is part of, it's actually the next thing that I'm working on is about like how to build a better how you yourself, but also the people around you that love you can like help build like an environment of support that is actually supportive and for the chronically ill person, because it's so difficult. It should not be the chronically ill person that has to like build all of this for themselves. That's not what we do to that, or that's often not what we do to, you know, my very good friend was just diagnosed with cancer last year. She didn't have to like brick by brick build this support system we just like all flooded out of the woodwork to and there was like you know somebody from her family came out and was like okay I'm going to organize this my the friend does not have the energy to like you know field all of your messages and everything I am going to organize it all for her and then I'm gonna send it to her here's what here we need somebody to do this we need somebody to do this this is going to be ongoing probably for a couple of years we need you to be in it for the long haul if you don't think you can do it for the long haul like please don't do this. <laughs> like, don't like get into it and then fade away. And like, anyway, there's just all of this work. And that's happened for several of the people I know that were diagnosed with cancer. I just use cancer just as an example, because it's, you know, most of us have an experience of cancer. And so 
But that is not what happens when somebody says, I have Ehlers Danlos, I have MECFS, I have fibromyalgia. And not even like a shadow of that. Like there's almost, there, there is negative support. <laughs> there's like, as you're saying, there's like often really combative friends and family who are like, well, why don't you either on the wellness side and they're like, but did you do the green juice yet? Did you do the celery juice? <laughs> like that's where, so why, why, you know, they get so mad that you haven't tried their thing. And, uh, or on the other side, like if they think that you're being like resistant to medications or things like that, even though your experience with the medication for a lot of people is really negative. So you've tried a lot of medications and you have paradoxical reactions. You've got, you know, these really outsized reactions to things that uh, a healthier person might not have. I think people don't understand that. Anyways, there's often just this very <laughs> core support infrastructure around people specifically with these illnesses. And, and it's really difficult to, to navigate that and to like build out, um, these better, healthier connections to other people. What would be good? I, I also want to be really mindful of your energy level. We're going on an hour and I will kidnap you forever. <laughs> um, so I want to be really mindful at any point where, um, and we'll, we'll wrap up soon, but I just want to be really, really thoughtful of like the rest of your day. I that. No, I love talking to you and I, I really appreciate that. I can, I can go for like 15 minutes and then we'll plan on just 15 more minutes and I'll, I'll do a hard end then for both of our sakes, because I adore you. And it's so rare. We actually get to sit down and have like, not just Twitter. Hi, how are you? Um, what do you think a really good, and I'm thinking of this also as you are a writer, you are an incredible musician. I went down a rabbit hole on your music this morning and I forgot how much I love your music. So I just like brought all of your music over into my playlist for the rest of today. Um, so please Wolf Larson is like the music and I will have links to, to the book and to your music on our, on our um, show notes, because, Oh my God, you're so freaking talented. And I know you're working on some new stuff. How are you able to create the kind of support system you need, like what would that ideal support system look like? Are you successfully doing that? Or is there a way that we could, you know, how can we as you know, creative people who are sick start working on this with working on our, our people around us to lift up our creative endeavors and take care of ourselves? Was that a long way around to a question? That's a really long way around to a question. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I'm trying to think about the difference. For me, there's this, there's Sort of, I was just thinking, is there a difference between creating support around yourself between friends and family and getting support for your creative endeavors? And I'm not, as, I'm so sorry. I'm a parent. So I was thinking the time to make the creative endeavor. Oh. I wasn't necessarily thinking like putting publishing it and getting like the word out. I'm so sorry. Let me uh, rephrase. Yeah. Just you have that wellness, the time where you are, uh, psychological. This is how bad I'm doing this morning. Not enough painkillers. Um, to make sure that you have that time in your day that you are um, mentally clear enough to write or to create music, or how do you, how do you carve that time out? How do you make sure that you have that mental space time and can still get food for the day? Like, do you yeah. have that support for, for all endeavors? Well, okay. I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to have like a D inspired, a D motivational answer. That's okay. Please. That might actually be helpful for me because I have been like writing uh, a book for five years. So please uh, demotivate me. So that's what I was going to say. Like, let's not, I've released one book and one album in 
15 years. <laughs> so normally, like all of my friends who are musicians in the same period of time have released six albums, you know, which I think is too many. <laughs> That's so many albums. I just, I have one, I just have the one and I released it in 2011. <laughs> and so, and I'm working on the new one now, but it is going to take me forever recording that album. Normally how you record an album is you just book the studio for 10 hours and you go in and you get your other musicians to come in and you kind of rehearsed ahead of time. I can 10 hours. Oh my God. <laughs> that is like an actual impossibility, even doing it. Like, yeah, no, it was just, I was like, well, I'm not ever going to be a musician, a recording musician, then there's no way. And so I, and I actually tried, to, this is a separate story, I tried to do that and I just flamed out so bad. And had, it was before I had really owned like not being ashamed of being sick. So I like, made up all these excuses to the recording studio about why I couldn't come in for the rest of the house. I just <laughs> go back, just be, just own who you are. Oh my God, that is a long time ago. And so what I ended up doing was I had a really good friend. I still have a really good friend named Nick and he's a sound engineer and, and he had all this equipment that he was like, well, why don't we just do it in my bedroom and we can just do it in like half hour, you know, um, chunks. And he would come over to my place and set it up. I'd go over to his place and set it up and we would only do half an hour, maybe an hour. He would set everything up before I was there, which is like such an act of generosity. Oh like this is like, to, because he knew he's like, well, I'm not going to spend half an hour setting it up while you're sitting there. I know that you're in a lot of pain. I know it's so difficult for you. I mean, we should all have a next argue in our lives. Like I was so lucky. Yay, Nick. <laughs> Yes. Yay, Nick. He, he knows. I, I feel like I'm constantly <laughs> thanking him for this. And so anyway, but that was that went on for over a year of like, is that, that's a very difficult way to record something. And so we just we did that over a very long period of time. We would do like a couple sessions a month and like it just took forever. And I and I also to get there's a lot of other uh, musicians on the on that album and so I would just like send them the track the all the string music on that track was I sent it to somebody I did not know that I just like had seen perform and I was like hey Anton do you think you could like make something up for this and like here's what I have in mind and he wrote back and he was like yeah I could do it but I have to send it to you like I have to record it tonight and send it to you tomorrow because I'm going on tour and I was like oh and he was like and you just you have to pay me now you have to accept the results and I was like oh I was like that sounds like a risk but I don't have any other options so that's what we did and he recorded just these incredible strings and it worked out really well but anyway the point of that story is just that was incredibly difficult and was very unique that I had this friend that would help me and I think that if I try to break down, okay, well, how would I, how would somebody else recreate that? One, I think it's like realizing that you need some support, like that you cannot do it by yourself and you can't do it the way that other people do it. And so you have to think through, well, what's that support for you? Like if you're a writer, it's not going to be having Nick Stargue come to your house. Like it's, and you like, I don't know, Nick, you're invited. Apparently you're awesome. So I'll, I'll yeah, please feel free. <laughs> and so the, but it's realizing like, like I can imagine, like if you've got kids or something like that, like really having to set like some very real boundaries around 
not just around time that works for them to, for you to set boundaries, but the time that is your time that your brain actually functions during the day. Because for me, that is like a very narrow window of time for creative stuff. And I feel like, and, and this happens, I don't have kids. So I, I have, you know, all kinds of space that like you wouldn't have because I just live by myself and just have Matilda wanting to show her butt to the camera. <laughs> but that's it. There's no other interruptions. And But my, for me, my main interruption is my body. <laughs> and like that is, it really takes me a long time. I can basically only do an hour, maybe max, like in terms of how, because for me, being in so much pain, that's the main thing. It's not just the brain fog of it all. That's bad. But being in so much pain and like sitting and trying to like fo talking to somebody is wonderful because it's distracting from the pain. Sitting with like a blank page <laughs> while you're <laughs> down down here, it's like animating how I feel. Sitting with a blank page while you're in a lot of pain is just it's the opposite of distracting. It's like your mind reverts like almost entirely to the pain. It's like, and so it's, it's incredibly difficult. And so, you know, it took me, I sold the ladies handbook for mysterious illness in February, 2010. And it was, it was due to the publisher in June of 2011. <laughs> and it was turned into the publisher, uh, October of 2018, which I just feel like is that this is what I mean. I don't I don't want to be demotivational, but also like that's the reality. And like that's something that I've really had to kind of accept that like, okay, I'm a creative person, but like it is gonna I am only gonna do a few big things in my life. And like, I'm just gonna try to make them as good as they can possibly be so that it was worth all of that time. Like there was a lot of pressure on me to release the book like in 2016 when it was like 75% done. And I was like, I could, but why would I? It's not done, I would feel embarrassed of this. And so I, I held on to it for two more years and like really worked on it until it was to the point where I felt really proud of it. And I'm so grateful that I did that and that I'm not, that I didn't spend all those years working on something only to have to release it and not be proud of it. Like that just seemed like a nightmare scenario to me to like work so hard through so much pain on something only to be like, this sucks. <laughs> so, 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 so yeah. So I think that honoring your brain and your pains like actual parameters, not being like, oh, I'm supposed to work from these hours to these hours because that's what normal working people do. That is, you just have to let go of that. Like that, if you're working from home or you're on disability or whatever, you, you just have to like kill off the kind of like residual boss <laughs> from the nine to five job that's like telling you, well, you should be doing this, you should be blah, blah, blah. You shouldn't, you should be doing what you are capable of doing and what is not making you sicker or worse. And if you're already at home and you're not in that nine to five environment with a boss, then like that, that is a demon you actually can excise <laughs> and like can get rid of. And I think it's worth getting rid of because I know so many people that even just creative people who are not sick, who when they start working for themselves at home, 
they like are such taskmasters with themselves and are working against their own creative flow. And they're like, I have to clock in at nine and leave at five. And I'm like, but aren't you a night owl? <laughs> like, why don't you just work from like eight to 11 and take the morning to do anything else? You don't have to work from nine to 12 in the morning. Like there's, if you're working and you're doing your best work, you don't need, you don't have to work. This is for a healthy person. You don't have to work an eight hour a day. That is just totally arbitrary. That is what other people are doing. What you have to do is the best that you can do. And I think that that same lesson applies to sick people. You don't have to do what you think you should be doing or what you like would be doing if you were more able. I think you just have to practice like really constant like self-forgiveness. <laughs> That's just like, I'm doing the best that I can. And like the best that I can and the best that you can is amazing <laughs> because you're doing anything you're you're doing it and it would be very easy and totally not easy but like totally appropriate to just do nothing <laughs> to just take care of your body to take care of your pain and all those things and so if you're also doing creative work i feel like it's important to be really kind to yourself that like that's great that you're doing that and that you're trying and you're doing your best with a really difficult situation so where do I send my check for therapy for you? Um, <laughs> there's, um, I think there's this thing for a lot of us, like if we got sick, if we worked before, if we stopped working, if we're doing creative things, there's almost this like, at least for myself and a lot of people I know, it's like this, okay, now we have to prove why we get this amazing opportunity or we, why we get this time. And to explain to other people, like I'm sick, my time is not vacation. My rest is not vacation. I'm not, it's like, I always feel like I have to prove something like, look, I did this drawing today. So like it, hearing you say like, it took me how long it took me and it has to be worth the pain. And here I feel like I have to like produce this quantity to prove that I'm using yeah. my sick time. Well, you're using your sick time. Well, and that like, you know, all those people who are working nine to five jobs, I mean, they're being so productive and they're working so hard yeah. when in reality, all those people who are not all, a lot of people are working <laughs> nine to five jobs. They're just like pushing paper around. They're just screwing around all day long. They're not actually doing that much. A lot of people, that is like their job. They could compress the amount of work that they're doing probably down into about three hours. But the way that the workforce is set up is that they're there for eight hours. And so they, you know, are on Twitter and they're doing all this other stuff. And it's like, I just feel like we give ourselves such a hard time as sick people if we start working from home, we're like, oh, now I have to work even harder. It's like the whole point <laughs> of working at home is because <laughs> you are sick and like it, somebody else, like if they, if you could just, you just have to remind yourself. I think about this quite frequently. If I think of the imaginary person that's like, well, you should be doing more, you should be trying hard, whatever, that, that sort of demon like, or it's not a demon, it's like a person. It's like a real person that I can think of, like the specific person that might be saying that to me in my life. But I, but there's no doubt, I mean, whatsoever, that if I could magic my sensations into their body, I mean, <laughs> like they would instantly stop saying that. They would run to the emergency room. <laughs> like it would be like, there. I just think that we, we, I, I will not say we, I internalize that like, well, you don't look sick, so it can't be that bad. You do start to internalize this a little bit. That's like, like 
well, maybe it's not that bad. And when, and when in reality, it's like so, so, so bad. And so you, but since I think here's what it is. It's because nobody is reaffirming that for you around you and being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, how can I help you? Oh my God, you've got this terrible diagnosis. That is absent for these diagnoses. And I think that that's part of what makes it, you have to be the, you're the only one that's gonna give you permission <laughs> to like be easier on yourself. Whereas if you had a more well-understood, well-supported illness, people would be doing that a lot. They'd be like, girl, don't just take it easy. <laughs> like you've got this terrible diagnosis. Why are you working so hard? Stop it. <laughs> that's what disability is for, you know? And so, so I, th I, I think this, now I've talked my way into an answer here. I think it's that there's no support around us that's, that's giving us permission to like, do what we can. And, and it's not like applauding us like, oh my God, like you did this in the face of all these struggles. Like that's incredible. Like that is, that just sort of doesn't exist. Like you get that, you get a little like cheeps and peeps of that, like from like really empathetic, nice people sometimes, but it's not the choir surrounding you, which really is the case for a lot of other illnesses where it's like everyone is like good on you for doing anything at all. And so you kind of have to be that on your choir inside your your head or call me and I'll do it. <laughs> you know, I might do that one. <laughs> I found that the, the disorders I get that are usually the ones that there's an end point to them or they'll be able to mimic normal life um, in some way, like what, like in the United States, you can take part in, in capitalism, you can work, you can, you can climb a ladder, you can, you can do those things, or you have something that will eventually end and you might get healthy again. It's a battle you fought, you won. There's that narrative of, I fought the battle. I won. I'm now back with you. I'm now back as a member of the society. And if we're having these illnesses that we become the missing people, like, that yeah. are just in our homes and, and in our doctor's offices, we don't get that, that slow clap as you know. <laughs> right. It's not, a, these are not the noble illnesses. These are illnesses that make people uncomfortable or that they don't believe or, and, and as you say, they're ongoing, which people really don't like. <laughs> and, but, but it's very important, I think, to like, for us to do what we can to, to change that because like people's lives would be so much better that have these illnesses if there was just some support any support oh my there's God. almost none and or like, you know in media having actual real representation the last representation i saw of chronic illness was in frankie and johnny and it was frankie and johnny at netflix uh great oh gosh uh jane fonda and oh really tomlin did i get the name of it wrong Grace, Grace and Frankie, and Frankie. Yeah, shoot, yeah, doing Frankie. great today. I need my drugs. Like the only, that was like the first time we'd seen chronic illness and it was the daughter-in-law and they treated her like crap. Like it was impossible to watch after like seeing how horrible everyone treated her. I'm like, but this is not the representation we're asking for. Just to be clear. This is like, I have a, an article, like a ragey article brewing me about this, but like you see this so much in, um, movies and tv where they're constantly making fun of anybody that's on a special diet or that has some of the like there was in that show transparent there was a, a oh yeah oh i liked that show until i found out too much about it i liked it yeah. so much more before i heard more <laughs> yeah and why well, I, I didn't watch very much of that show i think it's part of it anytime i see one of these 
like a woman, like a woman with mysterious illness being, they're always treated so badly. And I'm like, this is so interesting because I know that every single writer in that room fancies themselves like a social justice warrior, that they're like right about everything, that they like have the right perspective on every single thing. And I'm like, wow, you're doing the thing that like you would like clobber Ben Shapiro for doing for like treating this type of person in this incredibly demeaning, diminishing way just for being sick. And it's like, it's, it's such an interesting, it's like one of like sort of the few vestiges like left in like sort of a woker part of culture where people are like pounding the table all the time about X, Y, and Z, which I am too. And I agree with, but I'm like, but but if you're not doing that for everybody, well, then that should actually give you some insight into some of the people that you're condemning all the time. But like, you actually have some of those prejudices against people. Yeah. So like, that doesn't mean to stop fighting for justice in other areas. It's just to like maybe do it with a little bit more humility because you're, you know, you you, you can't act this way for some people, but but not not for others. But I know that they wouldn't ever, I know a lot of TV writers personally, and they would feel so confronted by the fact, they're like, but I'm right about this. Like these people are bullshit and they're all making it up. And I'm like, right, you're wrong about that. Like you have the Republican mindset. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, like why all this welfare, you know, this is just people aren't pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's all nonsense, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that's you. <laughs> that's you. But in but you're directing that same type of mentality towards uh, somebody who's got all of these gastrointestinal problems that you don't understand. And like, don't do that. <laughs> like, I just, yeah. So we're at the 15 minutes. And I know, I now I'm like, so getting up on my soapbox. <laughs> I know, I love your soapbox. I, 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 like, I I'm checking myself because I want to jump right up there with you on the soapbox. I know, uh, but I know. I know we will end up talking for another hour, which I want badly, but I also know neither of our bodies will handle that well. <laughs> so is there anything that you want to push or let people know about before we sign off? And hopefully I steal you again sometime yeah, soon. Definitely, let's do this again sometime soon. So you can, so... In case you didn't get this, my name is Sarah Ramey, and you can find me on most things at Sarah Marie Ramey. That's my full name. And the book is The Lady's Handbook for Mysterious Illness. And yeah, it's available everywhere. It's best to buy it from your independent bookstore. You usually have it. And um, or your library. I've got my favorite is when somebody gets it from the library. I'm like, I wrote a book that's in a library. <laughs> that's a good feeling. <laughs> like the book that really feels like such an achievement. It's my favorite. It's my favorite. Um, but you can also get it from like the overlords as, as well. <laughs> you can do whatever you whatever you want from it's all good on our side. And thank you so much for, for having me. And oh my God. Any and every time. <laughs> it's such I conversations with you are like such they're therapy for me too. They're like <laughs> actually good questions and they're such a joy to, to talk to you and it's just wonderful so thank you for having me well I feel incredible chatting with you and you really helped me because I feel like I've taken too long on my book so that was tremendous therapy um if you have recently been diagnosed with a chronic illness if you have a friend who has a chronic illness and you're trying to figure that out um this is definitely the book like this book is wonderful it's an easy fast read and it is uh it's empathy in a 
book form. Like this will, if you don't understand it, this will absolutely help you understand it. So that is my closing remarks. If you must buy it from our overlords, I do shop at Amazon. I totally get it. But if you want to like up that a bit, just support your independent bookstore. And uh, Wolf Larson is amazing. Yes. <laughs> if you are sitting at home and you want some really good music with gorgeous videos, that video was stunning this morning. Um, please check that out too. I found it on Apple Music. So it's very easy to find and hopefully I'll get to chat with you again soon. Okay. That sounds good. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.